sickness and those who commit adultery with her in the great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the children and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray unto the one who gave us this word. Father, we thank you so much that your Son has spoken to us, as well as to the churches in Revelation, and particularly this church in the city of Thyatira. Help us to have ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> as I mentioned to you last week, these are actually red-letter portions of God's Word because this is Jesus' exact words are recorded to us by John uh, to the individual churches in the book of Revelation. And as you think about each church, each church uh, has a kind of a major meaning or a major application point uh, to the believers that were uh, worshiping together in that church. And in many ways, this is uh, a singular message or a major message to this church. And as you have your outline this morning and help you follow along, uh, really the whole primary challenge to them is to learn to just say no. And that's so important in our lives to be able to learn to say what things to say yes to and what things to learn to say no to. And, and that's, uh, that's true nationally. Remember when, I think it was during the Reagan um, administration, there was a particular uh, pronounced war on drugs. Remember that? And there was a campaign, and I think it was kind of headed by the president's wife, um, and there was a campaign message, and the campaign message was to tell particularly students, as it relates to drugs, they ought to just say. However, when uh, that campaign was, you know, uh, kind of gone through its phases in terms of its application, they did kind of a study, uh, informal studies, and a few formal studies, and they, and they realized that though that message was very clear and it was very memorable and it was obvious one to pick up the message behind it, that enlarged the target audience that were to say no to drugs weren't just saying no. <coughs> they heard the message, but they didn't apply it. Now, there could be a variety of reasons for that. It could have been the, the pressure, the peer pressure was so intense. It could have been maybe how they were particularly wired within their own lives. And you could be maybe because of some nurturing issues or their nature, whatever it might be. But many of them simply did not just say no. Now, as we think about God's Word, God's Word is clear to us that it has some things that we ought to say yes to and to say no to. But the difference is, no matter how difficult it might be, and there are struggles in the Christian life, the Bible tells us because of His Spirit, not only can we hear the message, but we can have the power uh, for the message that we can say no because God gives us the power and ability to do so. The, 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 the challenge of saying no when you ought to say no is one we all need to heed. Now, that's true not only in spiritual dimensions, but it's true in other areas as well. I don't know if you've discovered that. But uh, I, I've found that sometimes not only inside the church, but outside the church, people will try to make me do things I don't want to do. 
Man, and, and this even happens at men's breakfasts. Uh, when I go to men's breakfast, uh, I'll be sitting next to Dan Mayer, and, and we'll have a plate of eggs there. And he, he every, every time we eat, wants me to put hot sauce on my, on my eggs. And I have learned in past experiences that I ought to just say no. Now, some of you love hot things, right? And you can just pour this on your eggs or whatever you might want to put it on. But for those of us who tried that and found out that's not a good idea, we, we, don't, we don't want to say yes to peer pressure. We want to be able to say no. Now, as foolish as that might be, there are some other things in our lives that we need to recognize that, that God wants us to evaluate. And, and we're going to be looking at a section of Scripture that we've read through already, but which God pointedly says that believers in that church, there are some things that they were tolerating that they should not have tolerated. In fact, in one way, if you could, you could name this church, you could say this is the church that was too tolerant. There's a positive perspective about tolerance, but there comes a place when we learn about things in our own lives that we shouldn't tolerate, and there's some things maybe in our loved ones' lives we shouldn't tolerate, and even within God's church we should not tolerate, because it's not drawing us closer to God's plan, but farther away. And, and so that's the, that's the message this morning. And I, I dare say, I was, I was saying in the first service that I, I would say that every one of us has things in our lives that that we should be saying no to that we're not. Uh, there, there are some things, I don't, I don't care whether it's in the diet area or, or physical exercise or, or certain habits we have. There ought to be some things we ought to say no to and say yes to other things. And, and that would be particularly true in our walk with God. So as we look at the specifics of what they were to say no to, uh, don't miss the point that God wants us to evaluate our own lives. And what are some things that, that we're tolerating, maybe you know, putting a, a, a blind eye to or kind of winking at or thinking it's not that bad. And God is saying, there needs to be some changes. You're, you're tolerating things in your lives you should not tolerate. Well, let's, let's pick it up this morning as we begin to, for one, do a quick review. Um, and it's, it's not really put well on the, um, on the outline this morning, uh, as far as up on the screen. Uh, the, the church of Ephesus, that was a love-less church. They were not loving at the level they could have in their relationship with God because they wouldn't put, they wouldn't put Jesus first. They, were, they weren't loving Jesus first. So that's the, that's the love-less or loves-less church. The, uh, the church in Smyrna was the suffering church. It was the church that that had gone through difficult times and it, it, had, it had become purified because of their, their comment on the outline. It says the compromising church, but it's really the suffering church. The church of Pergamum was the church we looked at last week, which was the compromising church. And the church in, in Thyatira was the church that was too tolerant. But as we look at that this morning, God speaks into them and he, and he kind of wakes them up by again revealing himself, not from a a provisionary perspective, but from a judgmental uh, perspective in terms of that he was coming to point out that which was wrong in their lives. Verse 18, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. So he's giving this church, these group of believers, individually and collectively, the look. And he begins by, however, giving them words of praise, words of commendation before he goes to condemnation. And this is a pretty good list. This is a pretty good list of things that were doing, going right in their lives. He says, first of all, I know your deeds. 
And the no idea is that he was fully acquainted with. It wasn't like he had a superficial knowledge of their life. He, he knew exactly what they were doing and what was going on. And he said, I, I have this to praise you about. I know your deeds. I know your works. I know your good works. And the Bible says that God has created us for good works. Ephesians 2.10 says that we've been creating Christ Jesus as his workmanship to do, good, good, to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. In James it says without, that without works your faith is really dead. And so he saw their works. They were doing things within the community that showed they cared about others. He said, I not only know your deeds, but I know your love. And in that way, they were, they were superior to the church in Ephesus because Ephesus had lost their first love, but at least intentionally, they were trying to put Jesus first. They were trying to love him. However, they were deceived by how they were loving God. I, I know you're caring about me and about the people around you, but you're missing. You're missing love as how, in, its, in, in terms of its priorities. We'll see in a moment. I know your deeds, I know your love, I know your faith. And again, you can't, you can't go anywhere with God without trusting Him. And, and wouldn't that be a great description or word from Jesus that He looked at your faith and said, I, I want to praise you for how much you trust me. You remember when Jesus was with the disciples and particularly when He was giving them uh, some lessons out on the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and, and the storms would come up. And, and they'd be filled with fear rather than faith, and they'd be wondering if they were going to perish. And here was Jesus sleeping in the, the bottom of the boat, wondering, well, you don't even care enough to, to stay awake while we're about ready to die. He'd, he'd be roused, he'd come up, and he would still, the, the, the storms of life was but a word. And then he would give a, them a commentary on their spiritual condition, and he would say to them, O ye, O King James, O you of little what? Faith. And so there comes a time where God can evaluate how much we're trusting Him in the trials of life. And as He looked at this church of Thyatira, He said, yeah, I know your works. You're out there doing things on behalf of people. I know your love. You're doing this not out of the motive of, 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 of pride, but out of a, a love for me. I know your faith. You're trusting me in the midst of the challenges of life. And then He says, and I know your service, or I know your ministry. And maybe to contrast that with deeds, deeds are are specific acts of, of, of care and helping for others. But maybe ministry here is, I, I know that you, that you come alongside other people and, and you're there to help them. And isn't that what we all need? We need, we need people who will come alongside us and, and listen to us. And we need to be the same kind of people that when we see other people in need, we're there, we're there to listen to them and to help them and care for them and show them uh, acts of kindness. And so I've seen that in your life as well. You serve people. And then perseverance, that they, they did not give up. They weren't people who were there one week and then gone for the next two or three months and then come back the next week and then they're gone for a couple months. He said, you can be counted on. You persevere. You are, you are enduring. You can be a person who, who uh, puts up and shuts up and shows up. You know? they, they were there. right? And then he even makes this general comment. And that your deeds of late are greater than at first. That'd be a great comment, wouldn't be? That that you know, I, I don't look in the past. Sometimes we have a tendency. The older we get, this is the older we get crowd here. Okay, mostly of us. Some of you are on the younger than get crowd. We have some hand raises in the back. Now, the younger the younger group here, you can just listen in on this. But 
the, the rest of us are getting older. Sometimes we look back to the past and we glorify the past. You know, remember the good old days? Remember the good old days when, you know, and, and you can do that with your, your spiritual experience, your church experience. You remember the things that, that you were involved in or what other people were involved in. And, and you look at, look at the past and you glorify the past. And he said, look, at, I look at your life and you're not living in the past. You're living in the present. And you're saying, whatever was in the past should be motivated to me in the present. And, I, and, and you're doing more things now than you used to do. And if, if we have a tendency to look at the past and glorify the past, it should be the purpose of motivating us in the present saying, I want to be more on fire for God now than I ever used to be. Can I hear an amen from that? Amen. We, we don't want to glorify the past. I mean, we can learn from the past, be thankful for the past, but we want to say that should be motivating for me to be more faithful, more excited about the things of Christ now. So there were a lot of good things he said about this church. But then, then he comes around and begins to shock them. And, you know, sometimes when I hear all the good things about a particular church, is I look at the church, churches, the letters to the churches in Revelation, and I'm thinking, are you just buttering them up? And I don't think he's just buttering them up. I don't think Jesus ever does, you know, insincere com- comments. But I think he, what he was doing, he was setting what happens to us uh, in, in that sometimes when we're, we're doing some things well, it will give us rationale to ignore those things that we're not doing well and saying, well, as long as my kind of good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, it can't be that bad, right? So that sounds logical. If, if I'm doing so well over here, can't, can't you kind of ignore those things over there? Can't we just put them in the closet? And God say, no, some of those things are so powerful that ruining all the good things you're doing. And if, if nothing else, that should humble all of us. Is that there's some things in our lives that if we don't change them, it, it kind of overwhelms all the good things that we're doing. And so now turns to them. You can almost say he turns against them and says, I got some things against you. And we're going to summarize them in two areas. And they're familiar areas, but they have some nuances that are different than particularly the church we saw in Pergamon. He says this, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. And that's where, from the text, you could call this the, the too tolerant church. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, this, uh, this one verse has um, a po- potential, a series of messages in understanding how, how God deals with immorality, how God deals with idolatry, how God deals with not only areas that are are obvious, the, the white and black areas, but how about the gray areas? Uh, but the issue here particularly is that they were, they, were, they were tolerating someone who was influencing them in such a way that was dishonoring a God in two areas. What they did physically and what they did spiritually. And, and they used the name, he uses the name Jezebel, and we don't know if there was a specific teacher in that church named Jezebel, 
or whether he, there was a teacher in that church who reminded them of the Jezebel in the Old Testament, which is probably a way to look at it. Um, but she was doing great havoc in the life of the church. Now, interesting enough, and I just throw this out, is that you know, when you name your children, a lot of times or you hope to hear, hear about your children naming their children, a lot of times you think, well, I hope they pick some names in the Bible. Now, there are a lot of good names that are not in the Bible, and so I don't think it's a necessary thing that Christians name their children out of names in the Bible. Uh, and, and there are a lot of good names. But let me, can I submit to you there's a couple names you probably shouldn't use? If you have a little girl, a little grand girl, don't, don't, let, them, don't let them call them Jezebel, all right? Just don't let them, just don't let them do that. And if you have, a, if you have a, a child, a male child, don't let them call him Judas either, all right? Judas and Jezebel probably should be off the list of most people's names, all right? But Jezebel in the Old Testament, and particularly in this case, was one who, who, who was able to persuade people. And one, uh, the Bible is pretty clear in 1 Timothy 2 that, that, that women should not have authoritative teaching in the church. So this should have been a red flag right here. And the other red flag is whenever you have someone who's influencing people, particularly in the direction of their lives, and they, they somehow refer to themselves as a prophet or a prophetess, and what they say is contrary to God's word, get as far away from them as possible. See, if I claim to you that I, this week I heard a direct word from God, and then I give it to you, if, if you believe that I got a direct word from God, then how, do you, how can you argue with it? Because if you were to argue with it, you'd be arguing with who? God. And, and, and so that's why God has given us this book, so that when we dispense a message out of this book, we can wrestle with what God has said. And whether the interpretation of it is correct, that's where we can wrestle with it. We know this book is from God, but when someone says they're hearing from God, how do we know that's true? This book has been validated as true. What people say is just coming from them. And what this prophetess, this teacher, decided to do was to to change their their view of morality. And this happened in the church in Pergamos through other influences. But Jezebel began to say, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. And again, it could have been, again, a pre-Gnostic view, which which has the idea of spiritual is good, physical is neutral, and so do whatever you want. And, And so they began to tolerate not only their own behavior and the behavior that was happening in the community, which has a, had a lot of uh, ritualistic um, prostitution in people's worship, but it was, it was infiltrating the church. And, and so as we think about it, that, that we have to be very careful about tolerating immorality within God's church. And it was happening in the church in Thyatira. It's also happening in the church of Corinth. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul wrote to this church, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, those outside the church, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. There was a a person within the church that was participating in an incestual relationship, and the people were just 
They're just turning away and not looking at it, ignoring it. They weren't disciplining it. They weren't confronting it. And, and, and why did it happen? Because somehow they got convinced, well, maybe it's not really that bad or that wrong. Look at all the other good things that person might be doing. In 1 Corinthians 6, I won't read the passage, but it's in your outline this morning, 18 through 20. It says that, that God's people ought to flee immorality because our bodies are that place in which God dwells, where the temple of the Holy Spirit. And whenever we're involved in any type of sin, particularly physical sin, it's, it's as, as God himself is participating in it. How, how heinous is that to imagine or to try to visualize? But whenever we sin as God's people, the, the identity of Christ goes with us. Now, that, that's you're thinking, well, yeah, well, why... why is that really rampant in God's church today? And the sad truth is it is. It, it, you know, the, the number of young people that cohabitate before they get married is just, the, the statistics are just alarming. That live together before they're married. But it's not just young people. You know, I was sharing on Wednesday in the Word Laguna Woods is a place where there are many people cohabitating together outside of marriage. And why is that? A lot of times, all you have to do is follow the what? Follow the money. There's a tax break for doing it that way. And and that's where it comes in. Well, you know, it can't be really that bad. I mean, we're just saving money. And and many of these people go to church all the time. And, and And they can justify it because no you know it's a victimless crime no one's really getting hurt we're we're doing it for you know for you know we're for uh, we're all alone we're, you know we it just we can care for each other and and if if they don't know Christ that's that's their freedom to do that but if one of them knows Christ their acts are bringing shame on the name of Jesus. And, and when the, the church in America wrestles with the whole issue of, of same-sex relationships, and, let me, and that's why I brought the other one up first. It, it doesn't matter what shameful behavior is happening between people physically, whether it's um, the opposite sex or the same sex. But when we break God's command, it brings shame upon his name. I don't know if, what context I was sharing this, but there's a, uh, there's a pretty well-known, is still a well-known pastor named Rob Bell, who just recently came out and said that the church in America will find itself ruined unless it changes its view on same-sex relationships. And then he went on further and saying, and we should not give our mar- get our marching orders from a, a book that's 2,000 years old. Which to me is the greatest danger. To think that somehow we get our marching orders from any place else. And, and we, don't, we don't condemn homosexual relationships. We should not condemn homosexual relationships any more than we would condemn adulterous relationships. Now, the good news is God's grace can cover anyone's sin. But they have to come to the point of saying, I'm going down the wrong path. But what is so dangerous is when you have people not only outside the church, but as Rob Bell is inside the church, 
telling people it's all right. That's the teaching of Jezebel, that you, you can do whatever you want or what is accepted in your society. And that's how most things are decided now, is what does everybody, what does everybody else think? Or what does the majority of people think? We get those polls all the time, don't we? And that justifies behavior, depending upon who, which side of that you know, percentage you're on. You're on the percentage at for or against. And, and what God's people need to do in loving, not prideful or self-righteous way, say, I'm going to go God's way, not the world's way. So they were tolerating immorality because of the teaching and the influence of a prophetess named Jezebel. But he said, you're also eating things sacrificed to idols. So they were tolerating idolatry. Well, what is idolatry? Well, idolatry is anything that we raise up to the level of who God is. And, and what was happening, and, and there's a verse in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that, that speaks about not diluting our, our relationship with God based on our, our participation in the religious activity of others. And it says this, verse 21, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, you know, just unpacking that simply, the idea, it'd be one thing to say, okay, I'm going to take communion, which remembers the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross for us and His, his promise of not only is he coming the first time, but the second time. And he, and he is the only means by which we can have forgiveness of sin. And then all of a sudden go into another place and worshiping with other people another God. He said, you, you, can't, you can't play both sides of this. Even if you say, well, I really believe in this one more than I do that one. No, you can't mix those. Now, I, I don't think that's the issue. When, he, when he's talking about meat offered to... to, to to idols, and you know, can you eat? Can you eat that meat? That whole issue is about whether it's going to be a stumbling block. We know those idols can't have any power. But what he is saying here in this particular area is they were mixing their faith, and and that happened throughout the history of Israel. When, when they started having other gods come in, in particular Jezebel, with the story of Ahab. Ahab was king of of Israel, and he married Jezebel, and it says of, of Jezebel that he incited him to do much more evil than had ever been done. And he, she brought the worship of Baal into the home of Ahab. And if you probably asked Ahab, well, well, who do you believe in? He probably said, I believe in Yahweh. Is that all you believe in? Well, I also believe in Baal, too. So it was Yahweh and Baal. Well, who do you believe in more? He probably said, I probably believe in Yahweh more than Baal, but, you know, my wife believes in Baal, and so I'm respectful of her you know, faith, and it began to become a mixture. And, and so we need to be so aware of how easily things like that can creep in and has creeped in, you know, to the church. When all of a sudden we, we believe, you know, God's book and somebody else's book or somebody else's word. And I don't know if that means going. I don't. I don't care if that means going back to like James Jones, Jimmy Jones, and all he did with the causing people to fall after him, or whether it's Ellen White, people who have other writings, or Joseph Smith, and and people put that on the same level as the Word of God, or, or follow their influence. When when people begin to to worship um, the mother of Jesus as much as Jesus or with Jesus, 
Then, and then what happens is they, they dilute the gospel. And it's Jesus and. And whenever we have Jesus and, then we no longer have Jesus. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Nothing should be added to him. And, and that's what was happening. And, and you can see what, in the midst of all the good they were doing, they were, they were messing with the lifestyle of a follower of Christ, and they were messing with the faith of a follower of Jesus Christ. You can't add to Jesus, because Jesus alone is the only way we connect with the true God. So in the midst of that challenge, he, he, he calls out for them to change. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Now, repentance is basically the, the word of correction for all the churches and for all of us as well. When we're going down one path that God is clearly defined as not God-honoring, then we have to come to that point, are we willing to turn around and go down the right path? Here it says that God was even gracious. I'm giving you time to repent. I want you to think about it. I just told you, think about it, pray about it, work on it. And she chose not to. When we know what to do and don't do it, it's a pretty simple explanation. At that point, we really don't want to change. She didn't want to change, so she didn't change. And even though... He was going to give her and did give her warnings what would happen if she didn't change. She stayed true to her heart, which was far from God. And so there were words of warning, not only to her, but all who were falling with her. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. Now that could have been, sickness is implied there, I'll throw her on her bed. And it could have been the idea, I will bring judgment to her where her health will be torn from her. They could have even had the idea of sexually transmitted diseases. We don't know, but I'm going to throw her in a place of torment. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, great times of trouble, unless they repent of her deeds. Now, there are natural consequences as well as God-directed consequences for our actions. And he said, this is going to happen. You need to change. Verse 23, and I will kill her children with pestilence. I don't think that's necessarily her physical offspring, but the people who were following you, there's going to be consequences for them. Remember when Jesus said to uh, the people, I think it was in Matthew 18, he said, you know, it, it is better for you that you were never even born if your actions, your life, would lead even a little child, one little child, astray. And, and so she, he, he's warning her and then warning those who were following after her, there's going to be consequences for your actions. Then all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. He said, what happens to her, what happens to this church, and this church lost its candlestick. Its light was put out. And these were not the only churches, even in Asia Minor. And when God brought judgment to individual churches, the other churches said, I don't want to follow down their path. I don't want to go the direction they're going. But God will respond to how we live. Verse 24, But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, 
even within that own church, who do not hold this teaching, who have not bought the line of this prophetess, who are not being influenced ethically or physically or spiritually, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them. And we really don't know what the deep things of Satan are. I mean, some, some propose that some of the more dark areas of the sat- satanic world, you know, the witchcraft, the sorcery, the, the drug activity, the, the real, deep, um, dark evil that can come from the evil one, Satan. Or, or it could simply be those who fall into the things that lead them astray. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is a, is a great passage on the work of the evil one. And Paul writes to the church of Corinth and says, I, I just... I'm so fearful that you might be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And, and then he describes later on in that chapter that, that when Satan appears, he doesn't appear as an angel of darkness, or for that matter, a, you know, a, a person dressed in red with a pitchfork. But he comes to people as an angel of, not darkness, but what? Of light which speaks of you know, what we said earlier in the message, is that as we think about all of us to consider what we need to say no to, it could be the little things in our lives that are leading us astray from our walk with Christ. You know, it's those things that are saying, well, I don't have time to spend time alone with God in His Word, but I can watch all my DVR shows that I miss you know, through the week. I don't have time to serve God because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty busy person, but there, there's some hobbies that, you you know, we don't seem to miss. Or, or it, it could be, you know, I, uh, I, I'm i not sure I could really serve in that area because I'm, I, I'm, I'm too filled with fear. And, and God's saying, well, I'll give you the power to overcome that. I'm not giving you a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. I don't, I don't I don't, I don't think I could ask you know, a friend of mine to, to be, consider their faith or come to church or, because what would they think of me? And, and so, so as we think about saying no, we need to say no to some things that are, are, are grabbing all of our time or all of our interests or all of our pursuits or, or, or to bring Christ into all those things and say, well, how can I use that for a platform? to be a witness for Christ. But he said, uh, those who have not fallen down that path, he said, I place no other burden on you. And I think the idea here is, look, look at, none of us are going to be perfect this side of eternity. We're, we're going we're to be struggling in, in areas, but what's the direction of our life? Is it clear that we want to please God more than anything or anyone else? Or are we kind of meandering Maybe not on the, on the path God wants us to be on. But if you're going the right direction, I have no other burden. I'm not kind of picking everything in your life, but are, are you going on the right direction? And, and then in verse 25, he says, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. The way you know you're going down the right direction is you're holding on tightly to the things you know are true about God and His Word and His plan for your life. You're not letting go. You're not letting the world influence 
And then he gives a promise, and this is, this is the words of comfort he always gives at the end of every, every message. He, he says, here's a couple things I want you to be motivated with. Those of you who are not going down the path of, of being too tolerant or not being able to say no. He says, verse 26, he overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. Now, that's kind of a mouthful, and you say, what in the world is he saying there that's so comforting and so encouraging or so exhorted? He said, I, I want you to understand, you're living in a, in a, a world in which the God of this world is the evil one. And, and when you're frustrated why often evil wins and seems like righteousness loses, when, when you look at those in positions of power and, and, and they are not the examples that you'd want to follow and you're, and you're feeling frustrated that you, you, you think you're losing all the time in the midst of knowing a, a God who, who is all-powerful, almighty, Recognize there's coming a time when I will come again. And not only will I rule with a rod of iron, but you will rule with me. Many people struggle with the idea of, well, how can you believe in a good God when evil seems to permeate? And the issue here is not if God can do something, it's simply when. And there's coming a time when God will rule this world. The, the most familiar prayer in the Bible. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom what? Come. Thy will be done. Not just like it is in heaven, but now like it is in heaven on earth. And there's come, that time will come in which we will reign, those who are falling after Christ, with him. And so we'll rule with authority. In the end, we do win with Christ. And there will be an earthly kingdom here on earth, and, and Christ will rule, and we'll rule with him. And then verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. I think we've all seen those bumper stickers on, you know, parents' cars. You know, my, my, my child's an honor student at whatever elementary school or junior high school or whatever it might be, and they have the stickers and things like that. And that, that's, a, that's a pretty neat thing. Or, or maybe if you looked at the homework of, of some kids or grandkids, and, and when they get their paper back, they got a face on it, and if they did well, they got what kind of a face? A happy face. You know, when we look at our lives and we look at what God wants to give us, he's not going to give us a happy face or a bumper sticker. He's going to give us a star. And that star is the morning star. And you know who the morning star is? That's Jesus. Revelation 22, verse 16. And so as we think about the motivating factor to live out our faith is not only because we will rule in the end with a God who is so righteous and holy that holiness will prevail, but also we will live in the presence of the one who is the bright and morning star and will experience God in its fullness. No matter how close we, we experience God now and we have his presence within us, there's going to come a time where we will experience God in his ultimate fullness when we see him face to face. So as we look at this church, the, the simple, straightforward message to that church and to us as well is that there are things in our lives at times we just need to learn to be able to say just no.
And in the midst of all the things we say no to, we can say yes to the one who is the ruler and reigning of this universe. And the one we can experience now and even more so in the future, the fullness of being with a God who created us and sent his son to die for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are the God who sees all. And that is both humbling and assuring. Humbling in the areas in our lives that you still want to change. And as we commit ourselves to you daily, then you begin to, to do that which only the potter can do in the clay and remold us. And then as we at times feel all alone, we can recognize that your presence is always promised and that we can know you deeply and fully. Father, help us to be the church that is not too tolerant, that knows when to say no, and things in our own lives and even the lives of people we care for, so that the bright morning star might shine brightly in our lives together and individually. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close our time together, we invite